polar ice, the droughts, the mega storms. The news and scientific reports tell us that we've reached a tipping point in climate change. Yeah, it is not positive. I mean, it just keeps getting uh, worse. And that the situation is really bad. If we fail to meet the challenge, all our other challenges will just become greater and threaten to swallow us. That news can feel overwhelming. I've definitely felt overwhelmed. But the thing is, People are fighting climate change. That's news too, and that's where we find hope. Today on Making Contact, we look at resistance and solutions, including a new model of community energy, a fight to stop a refinery expansion, and to start, we take you to the streets, where people are fighting cap and trade. So we're here at this really massive march where thousands of people are protesting the Global Climate Action Summit. The summit was advertised as a follow-up to the Paris Climate Conference in 2015. The official 2018 gathering featured business leaders and politicians and was called for by California Governor Jerry Brown. Look, it's up to you and it's up to me and tens of millions of other people to get it together to roll back the forces of carbonization and join Fighting together. carbonization, as Governor Jerry Brown calls it, sounds like a great idea. That's why we're having the Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. September so it might seem a bit weird that environmental activists hounded the climate summit all week. Our water is not for sale! Our water is not In fact, that was also the sentiment of former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Only in America could you have environmentalists protesting an environmental conference. We're here to protest Jerry Brown's climate summit to say that his actions are too much wrapped up in corporations and that the real solutions come from the grassroots. I mean, you know, buying and selling our air is not a feasible solution. And so we're gonna do it on the local level because we believe that we can actually make change happen from the grassroots in a, just a wave of resistance. So on the one hand, there's a market approach to climate change, mainly through something called cap and trade. And on the other hand, we have small scale solutions, locally controlled and not totally market-based. And you know, so what if the industries don't make money? At least we won't die. And, you know, we're talking about the very survival of humanity here. How we decide to fight climate change through corporations or through grassroots efforts will have massive ramifications for the future. We are not Johnny! We are not Johnny! We are Throughout the week-long protests of the Global Climate Action Summit, activists targeted what they called a false solution to climate change. No climate capitalism. That's a myth, it's a lie, it's a non-solution, it's a, it's, a, it's a false solution. So what are they talking about and why is it a false solution? Carbon markets are one of the main ways that governments and corporations want to tackle climate change. The cap and trade program 
is the most efficient, the most elegant to get the job done. And they've been around for a while, but they became especially embraced after the Paris Climate Summit to limit warming to two degrees, which at the time, scientists thought was safe. An additional two degrees Celsius. You hear this term? There's a few different types of carbon pricing. It's a big umbrella term that includes cap and trade, carbon taxes, red offsets, um, forest offsets, agriculture offsets, all of it. That was Tamara Gilbertson from the Indigenous Environmental Network. And with her help, we're going to explain how a carbon market works. In a carbon market, governments decide how much carbon industries all over the world can emit. How do they decide on how much? They estimate, basically, more or less. And then, collectively, these installations are supposed to start ramping down. That's the cap part of cap and trade. And that's not really controversial. Most activists agree we need a cap on emissions. But here's when things get a little bit more controversial. Basically, each ton of carbon equals one carbon permit. And every installation starts off with a certain number of permits. Those permits or allowances are, are basically given to them for free, you know, and, and they're actually money, you know, and, and they can then trade between them on a market. That's the trading part. And it seems to make sense, as long as there's a cap why not let corporations trade their credits? Together, we're staying below the cap, right? It doesn't work that way. Capitalism doesn't work that way. And so what, what we see happening and what we know is going to happen is that every single cap-and-trade system that has ever, ever, ever been set up has failed. So why? Why is a market system so unreliable? For one thing, on an open market, the price of credits will fluctuate like in any other market. So for example, um, the European Union emissions trading system, the EU ETS is the largest cap and trade system in the world. It includes over 12,000 installations. And somewhere around 2013, the entire market was so over allocated, it just crashed. But an unstable and volatile market isn't the only problem. There's been problems with the permits themselves. They haven't been well tracked. So this is carbon fraud, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> but carbon fraud is rife. So what we've seen is that some of those permits are like are used and then they're reused again. How? They're they're just not retired. So they're in the market and then they're resold on to to act as a compensation for another installation. That so it's like a bad tracking system. Yeah, and 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 the monitoring, the verification, all of it. In fact, just this year, 36 people who ran a carbon fraud scheme went to trial in Paris. They managed to swindle 1.6 billion euros to the market. So far, it's not looking so good. But really, the biggest problem with the carbon market, the fact that has angered a lot of people around the world, is something called carbon offsets. And to explain offsets, we go back to the streets. We're in front of the Park 55 Hotel in San Francisco, where a crowd is gathered to protest a meeting happening inside, a meeting of the governor's climate and forest task force. They're meeting to discuss something called RED. RED is reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, R-E-D-D. -D. 
Red is one of the offset mechanisms that's part of cap and trade, and here's how it works. Say you've used up all of your carbon credits and you need more. Well, you can protect a bunch of forests in the global south, forest which is in danger of being cut down. And cutting down forest is bad because it's a carbon sink. So carbon sinks is a way of saying that trees naturally hold carbon dioxide because of course as we learned in basic biology class, trees take in carbon dioxide and release oxygen, and that's how you, you and I are able to breathe. That's Dipti Bhatnagar from Friends of the Earth International. So because you're protecting forest, which actively pulls carbon from the air, you get an offset. You get an extra carbon credit. Deforestation is a major driver of climate change. So stopping it is good, right? Whereas it's actually not. What red does is it encourages, in the global north, factories and refineries to continue burning fossil fuels while they pretend to save a forest somewhere else in the world. And that compensation, that act of compensation or offset is what is meant to be okay for the refinery here to continue polluting. Then there's this question of what protecting a forest even means. So red is actually driving land grabbing and forest grabbing and resource grabbing in southern countries because there were forests that local communities, indigenous people used to live by for many, 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 many years. And all of a sudden now there's a fence around it. They're getting fines for going in to cut a tree to repair their houses. And why is that? Because there has to be this pretense of saving that forest to be able to say that it compensates for the fossil fuel activity in the north. Legally and morally, it's the rich countries that have the historical responsibility for climate change and need to be the ones that are stepping up. Okay, so you've heard about the problems with carbon markets and red and cap and trade. So now let's look at solutions. And while each community will have its own answer to the climate crisis, there is one solution I heard over and over again. An energy transition isn't simply about renewables. It's about making sure that those who have been burdened at the intersection of poverty and pollution and environmental racism are actually the first in line to benefit from the renewable energy economy. It means creating pathways and opportunities for the workers whose livelihoods have been linked to uh, the extractive economy and find them a place to thrive in a new economy. That was Sheena Robinson from the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. And so that means smaller scale solar projects or other renewable projects. What we really want to see is more local and community owned energy resources. Small scale solar and local and community owned, as Sheena says. Together, these ideas could revolutionize how we consume energy. So the first ingredient, community owned. Usually the power companies buy energy from power plants or solar farms and then they sell us that energy. But there's a way that we can buy the energy ourselves through something called a CCA. CCA stands for Community Choice Aggregation. That's Jessica Tovar from the Local Clean Energy Alliance. I guess a less fancier word would be like pooling, like when you carpool, for example. So people get together and act as their own company. And then you can choose where to buy energy. Don't want dirty energy? 
don't buy it. You can buy clean energy instead. In a CCA, you get to choose. This model has already started in Alameda County in Northern California. Now they did an early launch this summer and then I think a full launch this fall. And so they will provide Alameda County with different levels of green energy. So it's like certain percentage all the way up to 100% renewable energy. Here's the second ingredient, locally produced. So you've got the buying power. Now where do you find the energy? What about those big solar panel farms out in the desert where no one lives? No, but the truth is people live in the desert. There's wildlife that lives in the desert, flora and fauna. There's, you know, so you're still destroying that ecosystem. And we're trying to really emphasize, you know, that local is better and we need to start doing that now. Local is better. In this case, we mean locally produced energy through solar panels hooked to something called a microgrid. A microgrid uses the infrastructure already in the ground, so you do have to pay a small fee to use it, but your microgrid is autonomous and can be turned on and off without affecting the whole municipal system. Wall Street, for example, has its own generators, and during Hurricane Sandy... When the power went out in New York, Wall Street stayed in business, kept their lights on. And that's the kind of resiliency that we need for our communities. Forget Wall Street, right? Like, if there's a disaster like that, we need that kind of infrastructure here. We're pushing for a microgrid in Chinatown, for example, which is an evacuation site for downtown, but is not grid resilient yet. And there are a number of community health clinics, elementary schools, libraries that could be real community centers in the case of a climate disaster. And this hyper-local model could create new jobs. In my mind, imagine Alameda County or whatever county you live in, and imagine all the commercial buildings, all the municipal buildings, and then all the housing and multifamily kind of buildings solarized. When you look at solar in that way, that's a large project. That's a long-term job. This kind of vision, this kind of model, it's the first of its kind, and it's because of organizing. It is visionary, and so far, the model is in its testing phase. And there are some potential issues. Corruption is a possibility, but advocates say that that can be avoided when people get involved with their CCAs to make sure that they're democratic and transparent. The larger problem, they say, is that the utility companies aren't exactly happy about CCAs or community choice aggregation. I feel like every year dealing with the, the legislature, there's always a bill and there's always some kind of gut and amend and sneaky language that gets thrown in that hinders or attempts to hinder community choice programs. Currently, in northern and central California, Pacific Gas and Electric is trying to raise the exit fee. That's a fee you pay if you leave their system. If they raise it enough, most people can't afford to leave Pacific Gas and Electric in order to join a CCA. But the fight isn't over. Community-controlled clean energy is a growing movement all across the U.S. And we'll be keeping an eye on its progress here at Making Contact. You're listening to Making Contact. To listen to any past shows, subscribe to our podcast, get our updates, or support our work, go to radioproject.org. You can help us do this work. Please make a donation right now at radioproject.org and hit the donate button. No corporate or government funding, just you. Any amount of support helps. Thank you.
A controversy is brewing in Northern California regarding the expansion of the Phillips 66 refinery, the oldest in the Bay Area. While the refinery has been in operation since the mid-50s, new concerns have been prompted by plans to bring in even more oil and crude shipments, including tar sands, called by some the dirtiest crude oil on the planet. Anita Johnson has our report. 25 miles north of San Francisco, in the small town of Rodeo, California, a group of community activists gathered to protest the proposed expansion of the Phillips 66 refinery. The Houston-based oil giant wants to increase productivity of gas oil, but concern about the impact on the environment and the community's health has prompted opposition from local residents and environmental justice advocates. Rodeo residents like Ann Punch believe that the expansion will severely hurt her community. Well, every day we live with fear of what's going on at the refinery. And we know that the refinery isn't honest with us. So we're really trying hard to organize on the ground here and have some voice in what's happening in our lives. In August of this year, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District granted permission for the facility to start processing 69,000 barrels. That's 4,000 more than the previous year. Andres Soto, an organizer with the Richmond-based group Communities for a Better Environment, explains. That permit is for what they call a catalytic cracker unit. This is the unit in the refinery where they heat up the crude oil, they infuse it with the chemicals like sulfuric acid and hydrogen to break the molecules of the crude oil that then have different weights and they siphon off those uh, gases in order to make the various products. What this does is this is part of a piecemeal expansion of the general Phillips 66 Rodeo refinery operation. Uh, we are making the case that they are illegally piecemealing this by one application for the wharf, one application for the cracker unit, one application for the Selby slag heap activity, when in fact this should all be taken into account under one larger environmental impact report and a land use permit process through Contra Costa County. So by expanding the fluid catalytic cracker unit by 4,000 barrel capacity, uh, what it means is they're going to be able to process more crude. It's not a significant expansion, but the fact that it's any expansion as opposed to reduction means they're moving in the wrong direction. The Phillips 66 proposal is set to more than double its ship deliveries of crude and gas per year. The potential impacts on the environment and communities near the refinery could prove catastrophic. Andres Soto. So with these kind of projects, like specifically with Phillips 66, there's a number of predictable impacts. One is that because it is in effect a refinery expansion and they want to use tar sands, we know there will be more greenhouse gas emissions, which will continue to destroy the atmosphere. But it also means there will be more particulate, fine particulate matter fallout. Um, just as, you know, an atomic bomb leaves fallout that uh, people who are not necessarily directly impacted by the explosion then suffer illness from the particulate matter that they ingest, usually through breathing. Same thing happens with refineries. And so the fallout from the refinery expansion and the use of a dirtier uh, crude will result in more people in Rodeo, Crockett, and Vallejo, especially South Vallejo, um, getting sick from the ingestion of the fallout. 
uh, we saw in December 2016 when there was a, a fuel leak, a fuel oil leak at the Phillips Wharf in Rodeo. Uh, the impact was over 100 people in South Vallejo, not Rodeo or Crockett, went to the hospital because of ingesting of the fumes. And uh, it closed off the marina at Gun Cove, and it closed off the marina in Venetia because of the oil slick that it was created. So this is not something new. So we can predict that uh, both from spills at the wharf itself, from the production and processing, uh, that and any fires that may occur that the people who live closest or the fence line communities uh, will be the ones most directly impacted. Isabella Zizi with the environmental group I Don't Know More SF Bay believes the Bay Area is sitting on its very own standing rock with the expansion. It's really shining light in our own communities that battles like that is happening literally in our own backyards. And even if you don't live in Rodeo Crockett area, this is still going to impact you because you live here, because you depend on the air and the water that's surrounding it, and that we need to make that a standing rock issue as well. You know, we need to come as a community together to support those who feel like they're being silenced, to support those who feel like the fossil fuel industry is ruling over their own health. The struggle to curb refinery expansions in Rodeo and surrounding cities is not new. Five years ago, Philip 66 approached the Bay Area Air Quality Management District with expansion plans. At the time, the permit was granted. However, due to community protest and mounting pressure from environmental experts, the expansion proposal was halted in 2016. The Air District Board even passed a resolution condemning the Keystone XL pipeline. But today, the existing narrative has Philip 66 moving towards expansion while indigenous activists like Cedar George Parker are looking to reduce our dependency of fossil fuels by investing in the renewable energy market. As of 2014, there's more renewable energy jobs in the oil industry, and per million dollars invested, you get more jobs in the wind turbine and solar energy. Oil is a thing of the past. You can also see that the tech industry makes more money for investments, where before it used to be the oil industry, and right now we're in that transition, and so if we teach our young people right now that this is the trend, that this is where we have to go, that we have a safe and secure future. You can invest your money into the tech industry, into the solar panel industry. It makes more jobs, you know. And this is what we're talking about is jobs. Today, the state of California is seen as a leader in reducing carbon emissions and its governor praised as a progressive climate advocate. How then is it, some ask, that a proposal to increase fossil fuel production is not dead in the water? The answer, for some observers, is the great challenge for the future of California, the country, and even the world. How to align environmental justice theory with its practice in the real world of politics and conflicting economic interests. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson, reporting in Rodeo, California. And speaking of environmental justice in action, up next, we have a special preview of a documentary we're working on with Barbara Bernstein about the fight to stop a natural gas facility in Tacoma, Washington. The Puyallup tribe has done maps of the community to show the one and two and three mile blast zones from the facility. And I'm in that, my home is in that. And all of my friends and family in the Salish Sea are in that blast zone. I sure know that if this plant's built, I will sell my house and move. <laughs> I don't want to. What do we want? Clean energy. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Clean energy. When do we want it? Now. 
A 14-story storage tank is being built at the Port of Tacoma, Washington by a private utility called Puget Sound Energy. It will hold 8 million gallons of liquid natural gas, or LNG. Proponents of the LNG facility, including elected officials, some environmental groups, and the Port of Tacoma, believe that LNG is a cleaner option than other fossil fuels. I'm not a fan of fracking. Fracking is going on. We're in an industry that is trying to move away from fossil fuels. There is no immediate solution. Shouldn't we put the best available fuel and deploy that until we come up with something better? If you look at the reality of LNG, even though it's also a fossil fuel, but it is a cleaner one, that's one of the steps in the direction of moving away from fossil fuels. Environmental activists who oppose this project point to numerous safety and climate concerns, including that much of the gas stored inside the tank would come from fracking. We had been asking the city and the port and Puget Sound Energy many times just exactly where the gas was coming from. We know it's piped in via pipelines, but what we've learned just recently is that all the gas for this LNG refinery would come straight from BC. 50% of the natural gas produced in Canada is fracked. That number is expected to go up to 80% within 10 years. At least half the gas we receive is fracked, most likely more. Where does the gas go after it comes out of the ground? Well, there is a massive amount of infrastructure involved to take that oil and gas from the point of its extraction to wherever the burner tip is. And that takes the form of pipelines and compressor stations and hundreds of underground and above ground gas and oil storage facilities. And here in the Northwest, LNG facilities. Methane leaks at every step of this process from the moment the drill bit goes into the ground and contacts the shale, methane is pouring out of the hole. Methane is being loaded into the atmosphere, 86 times more powerful than carbon dioxide at being able to trap heat in our atmosphere. When you have a proposal for a fossil fuel facility, the proposals have to undergo what we call an environmental analysis that produces a document called an environmental impact statement, or an EIS, that is then used by many different local and state level organizations to issue permits to the facility. An EIS has to be done thoroughly and well because every permit that is issued for the facility is going to be based on that document. When it's not done well, as was the case in Tacoma, then the permits are based on false information or misrepresentations or inaccuracies. And so that documentation needs to be thorough and accurate in order to protect people. The Puget Sound Clean Air Agency, which is responsible for issuing an air operating permit, determined that the final environmental impact statement was insufficient in terms of its greenhouse gas analysis. So it didn't include all those emissions that would happen upstream from the plant or downstream from the plant itself. The Air Agency will make Puget Sound Energy account for all the fugitive emissions at the well, beginning with fracking all the way through the refining process and all of the actual burning of it. There will be certainly a public hearing. There will be public comments. They could kind of go one of two routes. They could just require that some sort of mitigation for the greenhouse gases that are emitted. Another one is that they could actually potentially shut down the plant as well if there was really no way to mitigate it. It's kind of our belief that there's probably just too much political pressure to actually shut down the plant. On October 8th, the draft supplemental environmental impact statement was released. It concluded that using LNG produced by the plant would result in an overall decrease in emissions compared with not building the plant. 
But climate activists and opponents of the LNG facility in Tacoma point to many flaws or bad suppositions in this document and hope that their comments at the upcoming public hearing on October 30th can have a bearing on the Clean Energy Agency's review of the draft statement. They have already been fighting fossil fuel projects at the Port of Tacoma for three years, and they see a long fight ahead. For Making Contact, this is Barbara Bernstein. And stay tuned, the documentary about the fight against the LNG facility in Tacoma will be ready within the next six months. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact and RadioProject.org. We do want to hear from you. What are your reflections on the climate crisis? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. And on Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and Lisa Redman. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>